Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I'm excited for us this morning to be able to continue our series out of the book of Ephesians. If you have been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we have been walking through the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians, the church that was in the city of Ephesus, which was an ancient city um, in uh, modern-day Turkey. And Paul had done some ministry there. Paul wrote a letter to this church after he had spent some time in that city. And God preserved that letter to the Ephesians so that we might be able to read it today. It was included in our New Testament under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so we have been looking over the last number of weeks at the truth that God wanted you and I to know from the book of Ephesians. And we saw in the first week of our series that God in Christ has packed within our lives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That God knows that this Christian life is a trip that is taking us far from our heavenly home and that God has packed within us everything we need during this life. We saw that in the first week. And then in the second week, we saw in the the latter part of chapter 1 of Ephesians how God wants us to not just know intellectually that He has blessed us um, with every spiritual blessing, but He wants us to, to feel it, to experience it at a deep level. And we can pray and ask God to open the eyes of our heart that we would truly understand how deeply we've been blessed in Christ. And then last week we saw how that blessing that God has provided for us is given to us not on the basis of our performance, not on the basis of our works or good deeds, but is given to us because of what Jesus has done. It's a grace gift given by God to us that we receive by faith. And we've walked through in, in the first three weeks of the series those truths. And we're going to continue our study of Ephesians today by looking at chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. But before we look at Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, uh, I want to uh, pray for us once again. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be together with your people and to worship you. Thank you for Um, just how you have packed us with every spiritual blessing. And Father, one of the things that you have blessed us with is your spirit that you have placed within the hearts and lives of those who live in relationship with you through Christ. And so, Father, today I'm so thankful for that because we are not just coming to look at uh, your word um, to try to make sense of it ourselves, but we can trust your gift of the Spirit to illuminate your word for us so that we could understand not just what we want to see, but what you want us to see from this passage. Father, I pray that you would help me to be your servant to communicate the things that you would want us to hear. And I pray that you would protect me from saying things that you wouldn't want said. But Father, if I do say something you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten by all of us here. But any words that I share that are your words and your truth today, Father, I pray that we would remember them we would believe them, we would walk forward in them in the power of your Spirit, that we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are squarely in the month of June, and as we are living our lives in the month of June, your life might be dominated by something that is going on in my life, and that is the NBA Finals. 
Uh, Even though the Oklahoma City Thunder have been eliminated, I still find my evening spent around the television watching um, the air conditioning go out in San Antonio, right? I mean, you, you probably spent some time, if you're a basketball fan like me, doing that. Now, I grew up in the 80s, and so I came to love the NBA during the 1980s. And during the 1980s, Uh, The NBA Finals were something that was dominated by two teams. If you were around during the 80s or you're you're a a sports history person, who were those two teams that dominated basketball in the 1980s? The Lakers and the Celtics. Very impressive group we have here today. The Lakers and the Celtics. The Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics dominated basketball in the 1980s. Eight of the 10 championships won during that span were won by one of those two teams. Uh, Every finals except one during the 80s had at least the Celtics or the Lakers participating. I mean, total domination of the era. And I grew up uh, during that time, and I was a basketball fan. I like to play basketball. And so I, uh, you know, found a lot of joy watching these games. And like a lot of little boys, you, you find a member of one of those teams that becomes kind of your hero, somebody you're going to aspire to be like. Uh, you might be wondering who I was aspiring to be like on the Celtics or the Lakers. It's not who you think. I thought I was going to be the next Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, I, I don't know where that came from, but I clearly had that. There is a poster somewhere in my house growing up that at the top, everybody on my little Little League basketball team, we all wrote our names, and I signed it, Kareem Half Pint Robinson. I was like three feet, six inches at the time, and I really thought that I, that I had some hope. I even developed a, a really wicked sky hook, you know, that I would, I would pull out in my driveway that I shot exactly one time in a game. I shot a sky hook one time. My dad was my coach. I came swiftly to the bench. Um, that was the end of my sky hook. That was the end of my desire to be Kareem, but that, that was it. But, you know, for, for most kids in that era, your, your desire, your, your, the one that you followed in that era was not Kareem necessarily, even though he was the leading scorer in the history of the NBA. The Lakers-Celtics rivalry of the 80s was all about two guys, Larry Bird for the Celtics and Magic Johnson for the Lakers. And the rivalry of these two men, I mean, this was a poster that hung in my room growing up, uh, the rivalry of these two guys uh, was epic. It went all the way back to their college days where they competed in what is still the most watched finals in NCAA history uh, when in 1979 they played against each other um, with Magic's Michigan State team and Bird's Indiana State Sycamores. Uh, They played in the finals there. And that rivalry carried all the way through their professional careers. Um, They were mortal enemies. They didn't like each other. Um, Now, in in today's era, if you were a basketball fan, you, you might, in today's era, you might hope that one day those players would be on the same team together. But that was not a possibility in the 1980s. This was not Wade, Bosch, and LeBron era. This was every superstar had their own team, their own domains, and never the two should meet. They really were, were, were rivals. They were, they were enemies. They were on opposite coasts. The thought of, of Magic putting on Celtic green or Bird putting on Laker purple was just unheard of in that era. But then something happened. In 1992, this beautiful thing happened where every dream of a little boy came true. The dream team was put together. And all of these stars were put together on one squad. 
and what was impossible before. You can't imagine Bird as a Laker, Magic as a Celtic became possible because a whole new team, the dream team, was created to compete in the Olympics. And what was impossible before becomes possible in USA basketball, and a new team was now, why do I go through all that? Well, first of all, because my mind clearly has been dominated by basketball the last few weeks. Um, but the other reason why I bring that up is because when you look at history, um, rivals have dominated history. And even when you look at the world into which the book of Ephesians was written, there were spiritual rivals. There were two teams that existed, spiritually speaking, in the world, which were enemies of one another. Those two spiritual teams were the Jews and the Gentiles. Those were the only two games going from an Old Testament Jewish perspective. You were either a member of the nation of Israel, you were either a part of the Jewish reception of the promises from God, you were either a descendant of Jacob, or you were everybody else. And that caused some real hard feelings between these groups. Jews thought less of the Gentiles. They, they called them dogs. They were discriminated against. And, and Gentiles thought that Jews were just flat-out weird. Uh, the animosity was, was quite real. If you were a member of a Jewish family and you were a mother or a father and you had a child who got married during this era, and that child got married to a Gentile, on the day of their wedding, you would not have a feast or a festival. You would have a funeral, a symbolic funeral. They wouldn't actually kill their child, but they would have a symbolic funeral saying, if you marry that person, then you are dead to me. That's how deep the divide was between Jew and Gentile. It was serious. There were two rival teams. Never the two should meet. But then along comes Jesus Christ. And what God does through Christ is he makes it possible for these two different groups to become united together and connected to him. And he does it by not making a Jew a Gentile or a Gentile a Jew. He does it by creating a whole new team through which men and women, you and I, can be reconciled to God. And that story of how God did that in Christ is what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22 are all about. And we're going to look at that today. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And as we read these verses today, I want us to stand. So would you please stand as we read God's Word today? Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 to 22 say this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so 
making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. You may be seated. Now in these verses today, uh, we're going to see three things that talk about how God has united us together as he has united us to him in Christ. The first thing we're going to see is the division that exists. The first thing we're going to see is the division that exists. We see this in verses 11 and 12. I hinted at it earlier, uh, but there was a real division in the world at this time between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Paul begins verse 11 and says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking to them, he says, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now, when we read that, it sounds like something off a medical chart, doesn't it? Sounds like a a term. To be circumcised or uncircumcised sounds like something that happens at the hospital. It sounds like some kind of medical situation. But when Paul here talks about circumcised and uncircumcised, he's actually talking about something else. He's talking about the use of a term which would have been kind of a racial put-down in that age. See, God had the Jewish people, those of a Jewish background, the males that were Jewish were circumcised. And if they were born a Jew, they were circumcised very early on the eighth day. It was a a mark, a sign that they were a part of the covenant community. And so the Jewish people were circumcised and they took a lot of pride in the fact that they were circumcised. So much so that they would look at these Gentiles who had not experienced circumcision and they would call them the uncircumcision. That was like a a put down that they would say towards them. You, you, unworthy, uncircumcised, so-and-sos. Insert whatever racial uh, derogatory word you want to put. If you, if you come from a background um, that has received that kind of, of, of hatred because of your race, that has had a label put on you that you hate, that's what uncircumcision meant in, in the first century. When they called them the uncircumcised, they were putting them down as a people, saying that they were second class and less than. Um, Paul acknowledges it. Now, this is significant because Paul was a Jew himself, and Ephesus was a Gentile city. For Paul the Jew to to begin talking to the Gentiles in this way, they're going, see there, I knew it. He's prejudiced just like the rest of them. Paul says that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were, were called this derogatory name by people like me. And then he continues on to say that this division between Jew and Gentile wasn't just something that was founded in opinion or in bad words uh, that were issued from one party to the other, but it was something that was founded in some degree of a spiritual reality in the Old Testament era. Verse 12 tells us that at that time, the Gentiles were separated from Christ. 
See, the Gentile people didn't grow up with an expectation or a hope for a Christ or a Messiah. They didn't live their lives thinking that one day God's promised chosen one would come who would make it possible for us to have our sins forgiven that we might be reconciled to him. That was not a part of the Gentile way of life. It was not a part of their psyche and understanding. It was not a part of their religious belief. It was for the Jews. It wasn't for the Gentiles. And Paul is, is just saying here, you know, when back in, back in the day, you grew up in an environment that didn't talk about the hope that Jewish people had known from the very beginning. He continues on and says that at that time they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not citizens of Israel. What difference did that make? Well, to grow up as a part of the nation of Israel was an incredible blessing in the Old Testament era. It's an incredible blessing because to grow up in the Old Testament era meant that you grew up in an environment that was living under the law of God. God gave the law to Moses, and that law became the law of the land of Israel. They were God's covenant people. They were living in relationship with him. They were recipients of the promises of God. To be alienated from Israel meant that you grew up without a knowledge of God that, that every Jew had. It meant that the, the stories of God's deliverance through the Red Sea and around the walls of Jericho, that wasn't your story, that was their story. You were alienated from Israel. That that meant that the sacrificial system that taught the Jewish people that the wages of sin was death, that language, that understanding was the Jews. It wasn't the Gentiles. See, to be alienated from the commonwealth of Israel meant that they were outside of a basic understanding of who God really was. Continues, they were strangers of the covenant of promise. God made covenants with his people. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with David, all the line of the Jewish people. Each of those covenants had promises that God's people could count on. But if you grew up a Gentile, you didn't grow up living life with promises from God. You grew up strangers to those promises. Because of that, it says that they had no hope. There wasn't a hope that eternity would be better than the present. There wasn't a hope to relate to God because it says that they did not know God. They were without God in this world. See, it was, it was significant to be a Gentile in this era of life. Um, Paul says that these Gentiles were divided away from God. The key word that we might use to describe the Gentiles is, is without. They were without the blessing that God had given to his people. There was a division that existed in the world. Now, what was the purpose that God had for that division? Why is it that, that God divided off Israel or the Jewish people from the Gentiles? Where, where, where did that come from in this Old Testament understanding? Because it was God's intention from the very beginning that there would be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just Jewish background people who would live in relationship with him. How did it get to where the Jewish people were in a, living in a special arrangement with God in the Old Testament times? Well, really what, what happened was that God had a desire to save the world, but he chose to do it by working through one family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and ultimately Jacob, who had 12 sons, that God decided, I will pour out my blessing to the world through them. I will enter into a relationship 
with them. I will set a law for them to, to help people understand what I am like. I will set a sacrificial system so they will understand the need for sin and then I will, or the need for forgiveness from sin. And then I will send a Messiah through them who would die not only for their sins, but for the sins of the world. And that this Jewish people would become an evangelistic lot who would take this message and share it with every other nation. That was God's plan. Really, his plan was to set up a beachhead through Israel to bless the world. You know, Friday was the 70th anniversary of D-Day. You might have watched a a movie or documentary or something that day. You might have had a family member who fought in D-Day. You yourself might have been there. Um, Just an amazing set of events 70 years ago uh, with D-Day. But what happened in D-Day was that the Allied forces needed a beachhead on the European continent through which to, to pour their resources so that they might win the war. They needed some place to land their troops, to land their tanks. They needed a beachhead to land to provide their provision. And that's really what God did through Israel. God's plan for Israel was, I'm going to set up a beachhead of Israel through which to pour my blessings and ultimately to save all of the world. That was God's plan. However, the Jews forgot that. They lost their way in that. And instead of seeing them as the blessing through which God would pour, the the portal through which God would pour his blessings to the world, they just got arrogant in their blessing. They got complacent. They got self-centered. And they missed their Messiah when he came, and they missed their calling to reach the nations of the world. And, And what came in its place was a spiritual pride and a spiritual arrogance so that when, when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, he writes to a world that is divided between Jew and Gentile. Now, under an Old Testament understanding, an Old Testament economy, if someone were to be made right with God, they would need to become a Jew. They would need to take upon themselves the Jewish customs, the Jewish practices, celebrate the Jewish festivals. Because the only way to get on the right side of God's blessing, the only way to get on the right side of that division was through this one nation. We'll talk about what happened next in just a moment. But I want to just reflect on this for for, for a second. In our world today, we, you and I, typically don't divide the world Jew-Gentile. I don't. If you do, I'd love to talk to you because that's not been the way that I grew up. That's not been my normal way of thinking. But you know what? We divide the world lots of ways, don't we? I mean, humans are excellent at dividing the world. We divide it on race. We divide it on gender. We divide it on how much money you make. We divide it on neighborhood. We divide it on school. We, we divide it in, in a thousand different ways. We figure out ways to divide up each other. And, and many times, this is what happens when we begin to divide the world. We begin to look at the world and, and find these divisions as some sort of ranking. I'm better than you because I am blank. I'm of this nationality. I'm of this ethnicity. I'm from this university. I have this job. My W-2 was over this tax bracket. Many times we, in our divisions, find some sort of pride, uh, just as the Jew-Gentile division was before, that would seek to divide us from one another. But a massive change occurs for those of us who live today, for those of us who live on this side of the cross. 
Jesus accomplished something in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection that makes it possible for there to be reconciliation between these divisions and reconciliation between mankind and God. And that is by Jesus becoming our common denominator. We see this in verses 13 through 17, where Jesus becomes our our common denominator. Verse 13 begins, but now in Christ Jesus. This reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Remember last week we saw the first three verses of Ephesians 2 talk about our sinfulness and our hopelessness. But then there's this massive shift in verse 4 where it says, but God decided to be gracious to us and merciful to us. We saw that last week. Same kind of thing happens here. Gentiles are, are separate from Christ. They're alienated from the promises of God. But in Christ Jesus, something different is going to happen. Jesus is going to offer something different to us. It says, but in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The, the Gentiles who once were on the outside are on the inside. They were once without, now they are with God. God did something remarkable for them. And, and Jesus accomplished this not by making the Gentiles Jews. Jesus accomplished this not by telling the Gentiles, you need to not eat bacon, and you need to celebrate the Passover, and, and you need to, to go to the temple and offer sacrifices there. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't make a way for the Gentiles to become Jewish. Jesus created something new entirely through his work on the cross. It says, but in Christ Jesus, those who were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what is that dividing wall of hostility? When, when Paul writes this letter, he's talking about, he mentions a wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. Well, where in the world at this time was there a wall that divided Jews and Gentiles? Well, the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles at this time was found in the temple in Jerusalem. The Jewish temple was, was built, and it was the place where God's people worshipped him. And inside that temple, there was a holy of holies. There was an area where the priests operated and worked. There was an area where Jews would come and, and worship and, and give their, their offerings once a year. But then there was a wall, and on the outside of that wall, yet inside the outer wall of the temple, there was a place where Gentiles could go. And this, this wall of the Gentiles separated this common area of the temple from everywhere where the worship happened. There was actually a wall that was there. Now, to take a Gentile past that wall was an offense that was worthy of death. They so did not want a Gentile inside that area. It was forbidden in that era. We see this in the book of Acts in chapter 21 when Paul goes to Jerusalem and he goes to the temple. And some onlookers, observing what is happening, accuse Paul of taking a Gentile, a man by the name of Trophimus, who was from, of all places, Ephesus, accusing Paul of taking Trophimus past that wall and unlawfully into the inner parts of the temple. Because of Trophimus' identity and because of that wall, I think that clearly Paul had in mind this wall as he writes here. But that wall still existed in Paul's day. 
So though that is the image that Jesus is using, uh, he didn't mean that physically that wall was torn down. He didn't say that Jesus took his last week of his life, he took a sledgehammer, and he went and he chopped that wall down. What he indicates is that, that Jesus is going to symbolically remove that wall that has separated Jews and Gentiles in their worship of God for all of history. And he does that, verse 15 says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The word abolish means to put out of business or to render inoperative. What Paul is saying here is that when Jesus came and died on on the cross for our sins, the parts of the Jewish law that were ceremonial and were unique to Israel, things like the dietary code, you can eat this, you can't eat that, things like the celebration of certain festivals and the sacrificial system. Jesus takes an out-of-business sign, a closed sign, and he hangs it in the window of that whole system. And what he does is he creates a new system, a new way for people to relate to him, not on the basis of the Jewish custom, but through a new man, he says, a new way, not wearing Celtic green or Laker purple, but wearing a whole different jersey, a new man. People might have peace with God through a new way, and that way, of course, is through Christ himself and the work that he did on the cross. He reconciled the two to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility, preaching peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. What Jesus accomplished was he found a way to reconcile these two very different groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, to God together. He found a way to become the common denominator to unite two uh, groups of people. Now, I want to share just maybe a little illustration to help us grasp this a little bit. And this is a dangerous illustration for me to do uh, because it deals with math. And I'm not good with math. I haven't had a math class since 1990, so it's been a while. So bear with me. You guys can check my work, okay? Um, But when you try to add two fractions, that is a difficult task. I remember in elementary school learning this adding fractions is tough. How do you add a third and a half? Mike Hargis can do this for me in his sleep, but, but it, I struggle with it. How do you add these two things? Well, in order to add two uh, fractions, you have to come up with a common denominator, a, a common lower number to represent so that you can add the two parts, so that one-third and one-half can become two-sixths and three-sixths. And if you add those two together, you get five-sixths, which is the answer to the question, what is one-third plus one-half? Did I get it right? It's impressive. I was nervous about this, right? Two services. I was going to screw one of them up. So two-thirds plus, or two-sixths plus three-sixths equals five-sixths. There's a common denominator that makes adding these two things possible. Here's what Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 tells us. Christ has become the common denominator that makes it possible for Jews and Gentiles to be reconciled. He is the common denominator. It is our common sin, both Jew and Gentile. There is not one person save Jesus himself who has lived on this planet who has not been a sinner. We have a commonality of sin, and that sin creates a need for a Savior. And since we all are sinners and we all need a Savior, and Jesus is the only Savior who can bring to us forgiveness from sin, Jesus becomes the common denominator that makes it possible for two very different people to be united together in one body. Does that make sense? 
Jesus makes it possible for very different people to unite. This is, this is something that makes it possible for people of different ethnic backgrounds. In Christ, they can be united together. This is what makes it possible for people of different genders. In Christ, they, they can be united together in God and have access to God together. It's what makes it possible for people of different nationalities, regardless of whether it was a, a Christian upbringing or a non-Christian upbringing. If that person comes into a relationship with Christ, it is, it, they've, been, they've been clean because a common denominator has been found. Our sinfulness and his ability to save us on the cross become the common denominator that make it possible for two very different people to be united in one person and reconciled to each other and to God. Um, Bible scholar E.K. Simpson said this about this passage and about the, the union that we have in Christ. He says, What a fellowship rivets our gaze in the communion of saints. Where shall we find its like? Gathered from east and west, from patriarchs of the prior and laggards of the last times, from the courts of kings and the cabins of beggars, from babes in arms and centenarians, right honorables and ragamuffins, from the ranks of the learned and the ignorant, the Pharisee and the publican, the sharp-witted and the feeble-minded, the respectable and the criminal classes. What a divine power must be put forth to mold all these incongruous elements into one constituent, united in opinion, whole, stamped with one regenerate likeness forevermore the radiant image of the Alpha and the Omega, God's yoke fellow and theirs, co-equally David's son and David's son. In Christ, we have the opportunity to be united together. Now, has the church always done a great job with this? No. Any fair reading of church history sees mistakes. We see it in our country where there were racial divides for far too long within our churches. Um, we, we've seen it ethnically um, the same way. You know, this is not even just an American problem. Just go and read about what happened in, in Darfur and in, in Rwanda. Some of those situations, how um, within churches there were, there were atrocities that took place uh, because of a belief that, that there were some insiders and some outsiders because there was a lack of understanding that a common denominator of Christ and our sin could unite us together and reconcile us to God. Um, you may have even experienced this in, in, in lesser degrees um, in, in, in your life, where you have felt like an outsider in a group of, of church people. But here is what this passage lets us know. It lets us know that our identity and our future and our hope is together, not apart. It lets us know that there is one body that is reconciled to God, not, not many. And so even if our experience on this world is divided, is, is separated, even, even if, it, if, if it looks that way from time to time, we're going to spend eternity together in one body. It's going to be a very diverse group of people who have been united together, added together through the common denominator of Christ. That's what eternity is going to look like. We have a hope of overcoming the division in Christ. Third thing we see from this passage is addition. 
I guess I got stuck on mathematical terms. Division, common denominator, and addition. We see this in verses 18 through 22. In verses 18 through 22, what we see is that in Christ we have been added into a very close and intimate fellowship with God. It says, for through Christ we have both have access in one spirit to the Father. Um, the we both is an indication of, of all who are in Christ, Jew background, Gentile background, whoever. We have access to the same God through the same Spirit. And that access is not distant, it is quite close. It says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. We're a part of God's household. That's why we call God our Heavenly Father. We're not outsiders from the promises of God now. We have been naturalized as citizens of His new kingdom. We are a part of this close relationship with God in this world. And how close is that relationship? That It's so close that God has chosen the gathering of followers of Christ as the place where His presence exists today. See, in the Old Testament time, um, God's presence in the world was located in a physical temple. It was located in Jerusalem. That's where God's presence was in the Old Testament, was residing above the Ark of the Covenant right there in Jerusalem, one physical location. Um, but in the New Testament times, based on what Christ has done, Jesus is building a new temple, a new place where His presence will dwell. Look at what it says in verses 20 to 22. It says that this new temple, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is not talking about a new building program that is physical. It's talking about a spiritual building, a gathering of believers in Christ that is within believers in Christ that God has chosen to place His Spirit to have it reside and to dwell with His people. This temple, this new temple that God has created, it says it was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets here, that's an an indication, the tip of the hat to the New Testament. It was the apostles and New Testament era prophets that wrote the New Testament, the, the foundation of our beliefs. There was a foundation that was laid by them that was all based off of the cornerstone of Jesus. The most important rock in any foundation in that era was a cornerstone. It was square on the sides. If you had a good cornerstone, then the building would be square. The building would be strong. And Jesus is our cornerstone with the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then each of us, as we have trusted in Christ, are like a living stone that has been stacked together into this dwelling place of God in the, on the earth. That means that we have connection not just with each other, but with every believer that is living on the planet right now and every believer who has lived since the first century. We are attached together in one single dwelling place for God in this world. There's a continuity among us. And what Paul is saying there is that part of the blessing that God has packed is that God has packed His presence among us as we gather together. And here's an encouragement that I have for you today that maybe this will um, be helpful and encouraging to you as, as, as it is to me. God is present in our, in our midst when we gather. That's, that's why we gather. We gather to worship Him and we gather because, because God is here. Not that God is just here, 
But that as we gather, God is here. He said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also. He says that these living stones stacked together become the temple, the dwelling place of God in this earth. And sometimes we forget that. You know, you might have had a really tough week this week. That's happened to me uh, recently, just tough weeks, tough news, some difficulty that, that we're, we were going through. And as you go through difficulty in life, sometimes you, you, you say things to yourself like, you know, today I think I want to stay home and just meet with God. And you know what? They're, I'm not going to bash that. I certainly you know, the Spirit resides within believers. You can meet with God. When you open your Bible and read by yourself, you're going to meet with Him. You're going to pray with Him there. You don't need to go between in any way. That's true. But you know what has happened in my life is when I have come to church on those days that I feel like I don't want to be there, it's amazing to me how God shows up in those moments. God shows up in the collection of people and encourages me through, 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 through you all. Why is that? Because God has chosen this place to be the place where He is dwelling with His people. And not just Wildwood specific, but everywhere where believers are gathering together. The holy place of God's provision. See, we've seen division. We've seen Jesus being the common denominator for that division. And we've seen that we are built into a beautiful addition, a new temple for God Himself. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and they're going to lead us in a closing song. But as they come, I want to share a little bit about the song that we're getting ready to sing with them. Um, we're going to sing a song called Cornerstone. In some ways, this is a very new song, a song that was recorded recently, just in the last couple of years. But really, the recording of this song is, is just a, a new take on a very old song. Because the song Cornerstone, originally, we know it as the hymn, um, My Hope is Found or Built on Nothing Less, a hymn that was written by Edward Moat uh, all the way back in the 1800s in England. And I think it's just such an appropriate song for us to sing together today because, hey, we're singing about Christ as the cornerstone that makes it possible for us to relate to God and to each other. Um, and so that's a relevant piece of, of information. But, but also, not only is that true, but we're singing a song that was written 200 years ago because we are a part of a body that goes all the way back 2,000 years to the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And in every case, it's, it's issuing forth the same hope, the hope that is found not in our goodness, not in our works, but it's found in what God has provided for us in Christ. So as we prepare to uh, sing this song, would you please stand and join us? As we